Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. We'll begin with this. Both of Georgia's sitting Republican senators, David Perdue and Kelly Leffler, voted to install the newest U.S. Supreme Court Associate Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Now, Coney Barrett's nomination was approved by a 52 to 48 vote, with Republicans overpowering their Democratic opposition. Barrett will fill the vacancy left by the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who died last month. Now, coming up later on Closer Look, a Georgia cattle farmer shares how the pandemic has changed his way of life and the industry as a whole. When another entity's life depends on you, you don't get a whole lot of option of, hey, I'm going to lock up inside the house and just have to face it and deal with what comes. And, you know, like I say, in the the early stages of it, it, there was a lot of uncertainties and, you know, not knowing what was going to be able to happen. But one thing we did know is that, you know, we still had to provide food and fiber for the world. So that's what we did. That conversation within this hour. And speaking of the pandemic, states throughout the nation continue to experience a surge in new coronavirus cases. Now, according to Johns Hopkins University, the U.S. leads the world in the number of new COVID-19 cases on a daily basis. Here in Georgia, the latest figures from the State Department of Public Health indicate newly confirmed cases are up 21 percent in the last 14 days. So at the time of this broadcast, 351,881 COVID-19 cases in total have been confirmed here in Georgia. Test positivity and the number of active coronavirus-related hospitalizations have also been climbing in the past two weeks. So in total, 31,087 have been hospitalized, and of those, 5,829 were ICU admissions. Now 7,827 deaths have been recorded since March. And we get all this information from the Georgia Department of Public Health. And also, according to the Department of Health, Fulton remains the top Georgia county for coronavirus cases. DeKalb is also among the top five counties. And since both counties make up a majority of MARTA's ridership, all three are partnering to offer COVID-19 testing, specifically Brookhaven Station and the Georgia Rural Congress Center, CNN Center stations, will be able to offer testing. Officials say the goal is to make sure MARTA customers and residents who live near the rail stations have access to quick, free testing. Drive-up and walk-up testing will be available beginning this Thursday. Tests will be available in the long-term parking lot at Brookhaven Station, pay attention, from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m. weekdays, except Wednesday, and from 9 to 4 on weekends. Also, if you still want to take advantage of the little time left for early voting and get a test, COVID-19 testing and flu shots will be available at State Farm Arena from 10 a.m. until 4 p.m. until this Friday. This is Closer Look.
And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Early voting in Georgia ends this coming Friday, and of course the election is the following Tuesday. Nationwide, early voting turnout has greatly surpassed 2016 numbers. In fact, it's estimated at the time of this broadcast, more than 58.7 million have voted so far. Here in Georgia, that's more than 2.7 that have taken advantage of early voting and absentee by mail ballots. We've checked in with Fulton County election officials. Now let's head to Cobb County to get the latest on early voting and everything else taking place in that county. So joining me now is Janine Evler. She's Cobb County Director of Elections Registration. Director Evler, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. So let's get a little snapshot of Cobb County. Um, What's the turnout been like in terms of those taking advantage of uh, early voting? Well, I think we're up to about 212,000 ballots cast already, which is a little over 40%, 41%. We're hoping we get up to at least 50% in the early voting um, turnout. Now, through your assessment, I have you all, what's been the feedback in terms of long lines, the process? Well, we have had great turnout in early and with absentee ballots, so that should take a lot of pressure off of the election day demand. The, um, the comments that we're getting, uh, other than the first three days when we had some issues with the state system, mm-hmm. have been very positive. People are getting through the lines fairly quickly. Um, with the exception of our main office, the other locations have had less than an hour wait. For early voting, did you all add polling locations since what happened with the June primary? Well, we had always intended to have more for the general election. That's uh, just something that we would normally plan for anyway, knowing that the turnout's going to be higher. So we we do have 11 locations open um, all throughout the, the period. We had two that were only open for two weeks, but mm-hmm. all the other ones have been open all three weeks. And let's talk about the, I guess, the voter experience. Uh, were you able to have full staffing at your polling locations? I know in some counties uh, that was an issue. Did you all have enough poll workers? Yes, we have. We um, generally use uh, temp services for early voting, as which is different than election day t- uh, staffing. Mm-hmm. But we also have poll workers that come in and uh, help us with the line management and the customer service while people are waiting. And in terms of that line management, I guess that's more than important now because of the pandemic. How are you all in terms of the measures for social distancing, sanitation, all that? How are you all working through that process? Our line management, we're able to social distance while people are waiting. We've we've gotten our line, in most cases, out onto you know the sidewalk, into the parking areas, so that we can space people out a bit. Uh, but because we want to have as many units to vote on as possible inside the poll, um, that area is not as uh, distanced as it was in June. We really tried to do some distancing in June as we weren't really as sure about the pandemic mm-hmm. and what the you know impacts would be. But now with the number of voters that we have, we really have to move them through quicker is, is our strategy now. So within Cobb County, are you... Are voters for early voting, are they able to vote anywhere within the county or are they assigned specific locations based on their their address? I think uh, statewide and certainly in Cobb County, uh, early voting is you can go to any of the locations in your county. Uh, So that's how it is in our county. I, Mm -hmm. I assumed it was in every county. 
Fulton, which has its own set of, uh, they did add State Farm Arena for anyone within Fulton, uh, but then come election day, that's going to change because they won't be able to, to offer uh, State Farm Arena. But uh, you all don't have an arena out there, but considering the size of Cobb and Fulton, that's a issue that you all may not have to worry about as much as Fulton. Right. And and an arena like that is only useful for early voting because, mm-hmm. like you said, you can go to any location. Uh, but on Election Day, people really do have to go to their polling location uh, for their precinct. And that that's a key item because a lot of folks have been moved and mm-hmm. polling cha- uh, locations have been changed. So it's real important for voters to go to the My Voter page and, and make sure that they're going to the right polling location on Election Day. Now let's move to the absentee ballots. Any idea how many y'all have been able to process? Well, we've issued about 182,000 ballots, but almost 20,000 of those have been canceled by voters who decided to vote in person. Mm. So we've received about 107,000 back to count. So we've gotten a very good uh, response, uh, especially with the drop boxes being available. Let me get your thoughts on that, because you have been in this space for for a while now. What does that say to you about folks taking the advantage of not only just early voting, but the apps, but the mail in process as well? Um, is it just more than just a pandemic? Is it just more than voter engagement or a combination of both? I think it is a combination of both, but it's also people becoming aware of another method of voting with uh, the absentee mail. It was really uh, just a small group of people that were elderly or disabled or were out of town. And although it was always available to everybody, I think people have just now started to realize that that's another way that they can take advantage to cast their ballot. Now, let's talk about the machines, because depending on whom you ask, you get, you'll get a different answer. I'll, start, I'll, give, I'll ask you the same question. What do you think of the new voting ma- machines for Georgia? The good, the bad? Well, there's a lot to get used to. It's different, and we're, we're learning things every day um, that we you know, hadn't considered that as a little different process than we were used to before. Um, we're really glad to have a paper record because that is available for audits and recounts and will give people more assurance that, you know, their votes are, are really tangible things. So that part we're really glad about. Um, but there are, are some things that we are trying to get used to. Like what? Give an example. <laughs> I knew you were going to ask me <laughs> You <that>. know that. <laughs> well, we just learned something this morning that um, people who choose a write-in candidate Uh, the old system would capture whatever they typed in and we wouldn't have to count it manually the Mm. new system uh, doesn't do that so all of the write-in ballots that are cast we have to hand count oh no one put rose scott in there that you know of right (laughs) i don't know i'm sure they (laughs) somebody would have But for our listener who says, well, that's time consuming, is that is that the issue that's time consuming? And then how do you get that that ballot, that name into the system? You have to manually put it in then, right? Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's right. Hmm. So we would only tabulate for those qualified write-ins that are on the list of qualified write-ins the state has provided to us. So any votes for Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck, which we always get some of those. Are you serious? They, they, oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> they would not be tabulated. 
And you're not going to count Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck? Come on, Director. No, unfortunately, no, we don't count those. <laughs> um, there were some concerns about the the tablets or the poll tablets that the workers have to, they're working with. Have you all had any technical difficulties with those? Uh, well, in early voting, it it's not really as much of a problem because those units are just used to encode the card. Mm-hmm. So everything is done on the laptop computer right into the state system during early voting. Um, but on election day, those that is the main method of checking people in and encoding their card and checking to see if they have already voted absentee. So those are very critical components. And again, we're just learning still some things about those that um, you know we'll get better at. Mm-hmm. But we had some problems in June, and hopefully we've resolved some of those for November. A federal appeals court just ruled Georgia's polling locations, they're not going to be required to have hard copies of voter records. Is that helpful? Not? What you, what's your thoughts on that? Well, even before this, the federal court ruling, we always had a paper copy mm-hmm. of our voter list. Um, but what the, the court was ruling is that we had to have it updated throughout all of the early voting. Mm-hmm. And honestly, we're, we're still collecting ballots well, well past that. So that that more um, updated list is not updated enough to be helpful. So does that mean if, for example, a voter goes to one, if someone's not in the system or hasn't been updated, is it possible that someone could be turned away, not turned away, but they have to be given a provisional ballot? Or how do you resolve any potential problems if there's a voter that you all don't have in the system? Or Right. So you know. if... We would use the paper list if the poll pad, which is that check-in system, the tablet, is not functioning to check somebody in. Um, So we would look them up on the the list, and it it will tell us whether they have voted early in the early period. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, they're not eligible unless they say, no, that wasn't me. Then Mm -hmm. they would vote a provisional ballot. It'll tell us if they've been issued an absentee ballot. What it won't tell us is if that's come back yet or not. Mm. So we would have to have the poll workers contact our office to see if a ballot has already checked in or not. Because some folks, for whatever reason, whether they may not have faith in the the mail-in process or they just said, you know what, I'm going to go in and vote. But even though they may have mailed it in, is there a way for you all to flag that? Because some folks have even decided opted not to return the mail-in ballot but just went into the polls but you all are able to look them up because once they have returned their ballot application and it's been processed it is in the, it's in a system right as being right as soon as as soon as they've we've accepted their application and issued them a ballot their record is locked where they can't vote another way unless they surrender that ballot to the poll manager which we highly recommend if they got the ballot and they just decide they don't want to vote it that way, they want to come to the poll, mm-hmm. bring that ballot with them so that it can be canceled quickly. If they don't have it, which, you know, a lot of folks you mentioned earlier, they've mailed in their ballot, but they're not seeing that it's been counted yet or mm-hmm. that it's been accepted. So they're worried that it's not going to get accepted. But remember, we're checking ballots in all the way through election day. We receive ballots on election day all the way through several days later. Mm-hmm. So if they know they've put it in a drop box, for instance, then we have it and we're going to count it in time for the election. But they may not see that it's 
received yet on their MVP record. Yeah, and I know that for some some folks, yeah, we definitely understand that that they have some concerns. So, speaking of concerns, as we head toward that big day on Tuesday, what lessons have you all learned in the county? And then, how optimistic are you that on Tuesday, November third, that it may not be smooth sailing, but it'll be a lot better than what some counties experienced back in June. Yes, it, it will definitely be better than June um, because we have learned so much because we had an opportunity to give our poll workers hands-on training, which back in June they did not get because we weren't training in person. So we're already you know, well ahead of what happened in June and we've implemented a lot of changes even in the runoff in August that have worked much better. So we will be further along than, than we were in June. And Director Eveler, do you know if you all have, uh, or do you think you all have enough in terms of uh, bilingual staff workers at these polling locations as well? Do you need more? Well, it's we do track language ability from our poll workers, but we're not uh, staffing based on the language in that precinct mm-hmm. or the, you know, what areas may need a language uh, assistance uh, because you know, we're, we're not quite there yet, and we'll probably get there at some point, um, but that's not been our focus yet. You haven't had any issues of anyone needing assistance? Have you had any reports from your locations? that Would y'all try to accommodate that if, you, if that was an issue? Right. If we had an area where the poll workers were identifying that that's a need, we would try and staff somebody in that poll. We haven't yet heard that from any of our poll workers. Um, but, you know, voters can also bring a translator with them, a family member that can help them because any voter that has language deficiencies mm-hmm. in English can um, can bring someone to assist them in voting. So will you get much sleep on uh, November 2nd? <laughs> <laughs> Never do. <laughs> All right. What do you make of this election season? Just it's unlike, I mean, with a pandemic and everything else, unlike any other, right? It is unlike anything I've ever experienced. I've been doing this for a while now. So, um, but that's part of elections. Every election cycle is something different. And, you know, now we have the pandemic, we have new systems, we have voter engagement like we've never seen before. Mm -hmm. So it is definitely something um, exciting and unusual. I think I'll check in with you on election night because I'll be here. So we'll we'll both be up. <laughs> Janine Evler. Yes, we will. Janine Evler, the Cobb County Director of Elections Registration. Thank you so much for taking time as always. And I know our listeners appreciate getting an update. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. This coronavirus pandemic has meant some tough times for our nation's farmers. And whenever our farmers are going through a tough time, it not only affects the U.S. food supply and 
other products, but the economic impact is felt from the farm's local community to cities far away. And in a typical election season, the candidates are pleading to farmers and the rural community with promises from the campaign trail. But now there's another initiative focusing on America's farmers and rural population. It's a campaign called I Farm, I Vote. And part of the mission is to ensure the voices of farmers and rural communities are being heard. It's not easy being a farmer. You're up with the sun and down in the dirt. It's hard work, but you like it that way. Nature is constantly changing, but it's not in your nature to quit. You sacrifice to support your family and our communities. It's only fair that there's someone supporting you. Well, that campaign, as I mentioned, is called I Farm, I Vote, and it's from the Georgia Farm Bureau. And joining me now is Katie Duvall. She's Advocacy and Policy Development Coordinator at the Bureau. Katie, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Let's begin here. As mentioned, Katie, 2020 has been rough for America's farmers. I imagine you all have heard a lot of stories this year. Yes, ma'am. Um, it has been a year unlike no other, not just for farmers, of course, but for, for everybody across the country and the world. Um, but Georgia's farmers have been significantly impacted by the pandemic um, in a number of ways. And farmers are resilient, so they've they've done their best to uh, keep going and, and be able to provide food and fiber for, for both the state and the nation. Um, but it definitely has been, been a year like on any other. And on average, I don't know if you can put a dollar amount on the COVID-19 financial loss for farmers, but what are you hearing in terms of how much one farm has lost this year? Um, Obviously, it ranges based on the size of the farm and uh, the crops or commodities that they're producing. Um, But Georgia Farm Bureau, in cooperation with the University of Georgia, did a survey um, of about 850 farmers or so, just evaluating uh, the impact that they had seen so far and about 82% of those farmers indicated that they had um, and had seen a loss of revenue attributed to COVID-19, whether that be a decline in sales, not being able to market their animals, not being able to get their, their produce out of the ground in time due to a lack of help, that sort of thing. Katie, for our listeners who may not be familiar with the Georgia Farm Bureau, you all have been around for more than 80 years now. We were founded um, back in 1937 to be a voice for Georgia's farmers uh, in the legislative arena in particular, both in Atlanta and D.C. Um, We have offices in 158 of the state's 159 counties. Um, The only county we don't have an office in is Chattahoochee, where the military base is. But we we have representation in every county and every legislative district. Um, I know a lot of people probably know of us as an insurance company, but the insurance company is actually a member benefit of being a member of Farm Bureau. Um, it was added on to to be something that would um, help our members out. So while we are known for that, uh, agriculture is the basis for which mm-hmm. we operate. Um, and I'm fortunate to work in our public policy department that connects our members to their legislators, uh, both statewide and federally, and helps them to bridge that gap. Do you think most people understand, often we hear this this phrasing, I know I've used it, we always hear it in the media, the plight of the farmer, the plight of rural communities, the plight of rural towns. But do you think folks really understand when we talk about the plight of farmers? And we can look at Georgia here, obviously. I would say um, there's a two-part answer to this question. One, just in general, I, I don't think a lot of consumers understand what farmers go through on a daily basis without a pandemic. 
think back to March and April when folks were running to the grocery store, buying everything they could, because we didn't know what the next couple of months were going to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the shelves were empty and even toilet paper, I mean, food and fiber, all of that comes from agriculture and forestry. And I, I don't think folks realized until maybe then that that farmers were impacted by it and that if farmers weren't able to do their jobs and weren't able to have the representation they need um, on the legislative side to be able to continue to do their jobs, then our state citizens wouldn't have a local reliable food source and a safe food source. And that's important to so many people, whether they actually work in the fields or just consume the foods that come from the fields. Um, Everyone across our state's impacted by agriculture. And I think a lot of times folks tend to kind of take for granted the clothes they're wearing or the three meals they have every day, um, when in fact, that wouldn't be possible without our state's farmers. When you mention the legislative support that farmers need, that gets us into the mission of the I Farm, I Vote campaign. How did all this come about? This campaign's fairly new. Um, American Farm Bureau Federation, there's, there's a Farm Bureau in every state across the country, as well as Puerto Rico. So it's not new to the American Farm Bureau Federation. There are a number of states who had, had had their own I Farm, I Vote campaigns, but we actually began ours back in 2018 during the gubernatorial election. The main goal of that campaign was just to make sure that our folks were voting across the state, both in rural and urban settings. We knew in 2020, we wanted to make it even bigger and better. We have obviously a presidential election. We knew we were going to have one Senate race. Now we have two. We have a number of state house and Senate races um, to elect as well. So we just knew that it was a really important time to make sure that not only our members, members, but the general public were participating in the process. We've got a number of resources to educate not only our members on who they're electing, but also we want to be able to to educate the candidates on Georgia agriculture and those issues that that impact us. Um, so we kind of see it as twofold in terms of education on both the the um, candidate side and the voter side. You all talk to candidates to get their issues on specific platforms. So I back earlier this summer sent out a questionnaire to both our state and federal candidates, just asking some general questions about Georgia agriculture, their stances on particular issues. And then I also had the opportunity to interview on Zoom, because that's the way of the world these days, some of our congressional candidates. And I made that same opportunity available to everybody in those 14 district races, um, just to sit down with them for you know 20 or 30 minutes and talk to them about these issues and see where they stand on them, um, as well as just kind of get to know them and allow our members to see them in a different light than they typically would in ads and newspaper articles and that sort of thing. Because you all don't endorse any candidates, correct? That's correct. Um, the, the I Farm, I Vote campaign, as well as Georgia Farm Bureau, are both nonpartisan. Um, we, we don't tell our members how to vote. We said just want them to vote. When the General Assembly is in session, the Georgia General Assembly, how often are you all at the Capitol here in Atlanta? So we have two full-time state lobbyists that are there every day, and then we also have um, two or three other lobbyists that kind of go as needed. Um, I'm up there a good bit of the time kind of as the advocacy coordinator, I get to kind of bridge that gap between mm-hmm. our members and the the state elected officials. We we make sure that we have the represent, representation we need up there. And of course, as you know, in, in the legislative world, relationships are so important. Mm-hmm. So the more relationships we can have up there, the better. What is the Farm Bureau hoping state lawmakers will address when when they return next session? There are a number of things um, that affect Georgia agriculture. We've got kind of priority issues that we set every year. 
those range from a number of things. Uh, but one thing that we really focused on in the past uh, biennial session that that kind of burned out towards the end that we'll we'll probably be re readdressing again next year is the right to farm. You know, a lot of folks are moving into these areas and they don't like that there's a farm next door and they want to be able to see that farm and get get them to give up their entire livelihood because the folks don't like the smell of a farm. So um, that's one thing that we worked really hard on last year. Uh, it was House Bill 545 last year and something that is incredibly important to our farmers and their livelihood. So um, I'm sure wait, that would be minute, something. Wait, wait a minute. So <laughs> folks move near a farm, next to a farm, but they don't want the farm there because they don't like. I mean, everyone, you know, wants that rural feel without the, the mm. rural smells and sounds that may come from a farm. So, um, okay. Katie, it, it, you are also aware, I know that the Bureau is also aware that the plight of black and indigenous farmers, they face challenges as well. Um, do you all have specific initiatives or programs where you're working with particular, I guess, subgroups within the whole farming industry, if, or if it's folks who want to get into farming? Uh, you all have different initiatives and programs? We have um, a number of programs at Farm Bureau, and of course, we're inclusive of of any sort of you know minority group that may wish to be involved. But one that I would say is particularly um, effective is our Young Farmer and Ranchers Program. Um, and, and both our Young Farmer and Ranchers Program, our women's committees, as well as our state board, we are represented from people in all dis districts in the state. We have 10 districts, um, including Metro Atlanta. And we've got, um, I can think of a couple in particular that is very involved in urban agriculture. Mm -hmm and gardening um, in that kind of Cobb County, Metro Atlanta area. Um, and they they aren't what you would view as the typical Georgia farmer. Mm -hmm. um, they're, a, they're a black couple that has, they came from Chicago. They, they had nothing to do with agriculture, but they moved to Atlanta and fell in love with farming. Um, and their farming may not look like farming in South Georgia looks like, but they still have um, an opportunity to be involved in agriculture um, just in a different way. Um, so we definitely make those opportunities available and encourage them as well. And like I said, we're inclusive of all, all sorts of folks, um, even outside of what you would picture as being the typical yeah. farmer. Katie, we started this conversation with the current snapshot for Georgia's farmers um, as we just a few months away from heading into 2021. How optimistic is the borough that, you know, We'll get through this and that the farmers can bounce back here in Georgia. As I mentioned before, farmers are resilient and we've seen a number of struggles over the past few years. Hurricane Michael a few years ago almost wiped out um, a good number of farmers down in South Georgia, but they they picked up their their or they picked themselves up by the bootstraps and they've they've continued on. And um, there's always going to be some sort of natural disaster or something that that knocks folks off their feet a little bit, but um, like the rest of the country, farmers are resilient, and I think we're going to be able to to move on, and, and this will just be one more year that we look back on um, with maybe not the best memories, but also mm -hmm. I think it's given our, our farmers outside of, you know, their revenue and all that, the opportunity to spend more time with their families and just take take the time to enjoy life and, and the slower pace that it's provided. Um, so, like I said, they're resilient. I think they'll pick up and, and be able to to move on. Katie Duvall is the Advocacy and Policy Development Coordinator at the Georgia Farm Bureau. We're talking about a new campaign, I Farm, I Vote. Katie, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much.
And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Early on the program, we talked about a new campaign from the Georgia Farm Bureau called I Farm, I Vote. The mission to ensure the voices of farmers and rural communities are being heard with all these candidates that are running for office. Well, now we head to Pike County, Georgia, and we'll speak with Will Godowns, a cattle farmer. Mr. Godowns, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yes, ma'am. Glad to be here this morning. Let me ask you this. How long have you been a cattle farmer? Well, I'm 32 years old. My dad was one before me, and my granddaddy was a county extension agent in beef cattle. So I'd say about three generations now I've been a cattle farmer. Did you want to be a cattle farmer? Oh, yes, ma'am. That's, uh, you know, as a little boy, you go grow up wanting to be a heavy equipment operator or, mm-hmm. a, or a farmer or a vet or a truck driver or something like that. And I went through all of those, of course. But the cow industry runs in my blood. I've always been around it. And I love it. And I love watching watching the animals grow and knowing that we're doing the best thing we can as far as taking care of them and making sure they're, uh, you know, they're cared for, for as good as they possibly could be. Tell our listeners who may not be familiar with Pike County, Georgia, how would you describe this as someone who didn't know anything about Pike County and its community there? What would you say? Pike County is a, a fairly small county in the scheme of things across the state. It's a very close-knit county great sense of community we you know we've got one school system with one high school one middle school one elementary school and one primary school and and so it's a it's a pretty small place but it's got some industry around it and in it and people that are living on land that used to be agricultural land you know urban sprawl is is reaching us here in pike county now as clayton and fayette and henry county kind of come south they're coming to us and so we are seeing a bunch of agricultural land get developed into houses, which is not necessarily what we want to happen, but we understand that's part of life. Yeah. How do you all reconcile that? I imagine that depending on whom you ask, you'll get a different answer, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> if you're talking to the guys with the money buying land to develop it, it's a great place to uh, to build houses because things are booming right now. If you ask the farmers, that can't find any more land to lease to expand their operations to keep them viable in the years ahead, it's a pretty tough situation. So we'll take our listeners through a typical work day for you before the pandemic. You know, it was a pretty, I'd say we'd gotten used to the status quo almost. It's a routine we go through every day. We we get up, we get ready, we get to the farm. And, you know, first thing on the list is lay eyes on every animal that we own and make sure they're all there and healthy. And then from there, we kind of go to do we need to fix fences today? Do we need to cut hay today? Are we feeding cattle right now? Are we having calves? Do we need to check on them? You know, everything was kind of mm-hmm. simple. And we, we had a long-term plan as far as what we were going to do uh, with the end product. And we didn't have to think about it too much, you know. Mm-hmm. I'd almost say we we're stuck in a rut, you know, of this is how we're going to sell our calves. And this is the money we're going to make. And this is the money we're going to lose. And this is what we're going to do next year to, to try to mitigate some of that. Um so it was, you know, we'd, we'd done it long enough in that scenario that there wasn't a whole lot of things we haven't seen or mm-hmm. hadn't done. Until this pandemic hit and you had no playbook, no template for that. That, that is correct. That is, that is very much correct. And, Will, as reports were coming out that there's this virus that's taking place and then as states begin to shut down, what was the conversation among your fellow farmers and the conversation you had with the family, what, what did you think? Initially, it's, you know, let's look at this. How serious is it? And then it's, well, 
the rest of the world may stop, but we've got living animals that depend on us every day. Uh, we've got crops in the field that have to be tended. So and, until we cannot do that anymore, we've got to get up and carry on like we did the day before and the week before and the year before that. So there, you know, when another entity's life depends on you, uh, you don't get a whole lot of option of, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to lock up inside the house and, and be mm-hmm. scared of this thing. You just have to, to face it and deal with what comes. And, you know, like I say, in the, in the early stages of it, it, there was a lot of uncertainties and, you know, not knowing what was going to be able to happen. But the one thing we did know is that, you know, we still had to provide food and fiber for the world. And mm-hmm. so that's what we did. How many folks you have employed there on the farm that work with you, Will? There's about three of us. We work pretty closely with our neighbors. They've got an operation real similar to ours, and there's two of them. So we kind of co-op, as you'd say, back and forth. Like mm-hmm. today, we're at the neighbors helping them process some calves and, and make sure they're, they've got the vaccines and are as healthy as they should be. So there's about five of us that work pretty closely together on a day-to-day basis. How has this pandemic financially impacted your production? Well, you know, the first off, everything got pretty scary there for a while because the beef market went to plummeting, Mm -hmm. even though they were saying there was a shortage of it. And so we didn't know. We went to trying to book calves out as far as, you know, like they do with stocks, sell them months in advance kind of deal. Um, We booked a few calves out of way, but then we decided we'd just uh, hold on, ride it out. You know, the way our system set up is our calves are a month or two old in March. And so we've got till October or November is when we're really trying to sell. So we've been watching more of what, what the long term's looking like. And, you know, luckily the beef industry and uh, cattle prices have come back up. So it wasn't, wasn't too hard on that end. The biggest problem we had is a good bit of our cash flow from the farm comes from direct beef sales, selling animals directly to the consumer and then letting them have them processed. And, in a matter of about two months, uh, or probably less than that, processing dates went from you're booking them three to four weeks out to you're booking them six and eight months out. Oh. And so it uh, it pushed that income out a long ways. And just, you know, the hard facts of life are is when you've got a thirteen or 1,400-pound animal that's ready to be harvested for beef, uh, you know, keeping it another two or three or four or five months gets really expensive really quickly. No, I was just going to say, so the food, the vaccinations, everything that goes with keeping the animal healthy, everything that you're feeding, all of that, that's your biggest expense, I imagine. Yes, ma'am. So, uh, you know, fertilizer and uh, and feed are probably our two largest expenses on the farm. Vaccines, they haven't changed a whole lot in availability. Them has been affected slightly, but the price of that hadn't changed that much. The biggest thing that probably we we weren't thinking about initially that we have run into in the last couple of months is all of the processing facilities a lot of cattle feed is made from byproducts of other things so you know we've got cottonseed hulls that come from cotton gins and Mm -hmm. we've got soybean hull pellets that come from soybeans that have been processed well when those plants start running at a reduced capacity because you can't have as many people in as close of a space, uh, the output of those byproducts decreases. The demand for those byproducts has not decreased. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just the other week we ran into a situation with the feed company that we deal with, uh, you know, have been dealing with for years, you know, couldn't get us the feed we needed. Um, and we had to change 
change feed ingredients. And profits in the cattle business are really tight and really small. And where we make, uh, where our probably most concrete money is made is knowing what that calf is going to gain. How, you know, is it going to take us six pounds of feed to make one pound of beef? And what the, what the cost of that feed is versus the cost of beef is kind of the closest projection to how we're making money. If you were to look at an industrial setting, um, and when you go to messing with the feed, when calves are on full feed and eating, that goes to affecting their gains, which mm-hmm. very quickly affects our profit. And in addition to, it affects the health of the cattle. And then we've got more expenses in, in vet bills and, and doctoring time and stuff like that to keep animals healthy. So, How many heads do you have? How many heads of cattle do you have? We, uh, on, on the farm that I manage, we're running about 200. Uh, like I say, our neighbors got about 300, so we're about 500 head right here next to each other that we all raise and run, you know, in identical scenarios. Well, what do you make of all of this time that we're in and, and the pandemic? And I, I know you all, or when I say you all, the farming community, the rural communities, the agriculture communities, we're hearing candidates talk about they're going to be fighting for you. They're going to be... You know, they're lobbying for you. They're, they're asking for your vote. Are you hearing enough about the plight of folks like you from candidates, whether it's on a federal or, or local or state level? I think the, my best answer to that question is you can never hear enough mm. of folks being interested in what affects you every day. You know, I've got some relationships with some elected officials, and so I try to, I try to talk to them as much as possible and, and let them know. But, you know, I think on a on a federal level, there's a there's a lot that just gets bypassed because it's not uh, it's not what the the majority of the public knows about. You know, we're talking about people that are four and five generations removed from the farm and believe their food comes from a Kroger grocery store shelf, and it's hard to get them to understand how you know something that that seems good for them in a in a metro area environment and is probably something, an issue that needs to be dealt with there negatively impacts us out here mm-hmm. in the, in the rural areas of, of the state and of the country. And so, like I say, you know, there, there has been talk in the, in the last administration, probably more than what I can remember in my lifetime about agriculture and its impact on, on our country and our economy. Uh, you know, here in Georgia, it's the number one industry. It mm-hmm. brings in more money than anything else that we do. And so, you know, I feel like in, in our local state government, we, we have pretty good representation as far as, as the ag world is concerned. You know, it still takes organizations like National Cattlemen's Associ- Beef Association and Georgia Farm Bureau and other commodities being in those positions and lobbying for us so that we are, we are not forgotten. But there seems to have been more of a push in the last year or so that, you know, we're being talked about a little more these days. I think back to the farm crisis of the 1980s, and I imagine that's probably what your your father and maybe your grandfather, they, they probably well know that. And when you think about throughout history, how many times that we've heard about the plight of the farmers and the federal government either stepping in, trying to help, depending on whom you ask, whether or not they helped enough. But right now, if you all... And we'll stick with the cattle industry for a moment. If you all aren't able to get those resources that you need or support, whatever that may be, how is the is the cattle industry? Oh, you're at a crossroads right now. You're in a crisis mode. 
Yeah, and so that that very situation where, you know, us on our operation looking at that crossroads that you're talking about and, and how do we remain profitable with so many of the variables that we can't control changing every day. Luckily, we, we were in a financial situation where we can, and, you know, we're transitioning from selling live animals to, you know, direct to farmer feeders in the Midwest to finish those cattle to this year we'll sell half of our calf crop in a frozen package directly to the consumer. Next year we plan to sell the whole calf crop mm-hmm. in a frozen package direct to consumer. But there's there are very few, I'm not going to say very, well, maybe not very few, there are a limited number of operations that can do that on a big enough scale for it to work and that can can float the lack of cash flow for two years essentially until you know we're not getting paid for calves this fall it'll be next summer before we get paid for them now and so that's like asking a you know just a school teacher hey i need you to teach this year uh we're not going to pay you every month we're going to pay you beginning the next school year um Mm. so they're already a year in the hole and that's you know that's hard on just a normal family income when you look at the amount of money it takes to keep a cattle operation going you've got to have you've got to have some financial folks that believe in you and you know even though it looks bad on paper they believe in the plan and the system and that it will all work out in the end well let me ask you this if you don't mind sharing how is your cash flow can you all get through this year and we you know we've got other uh other investments other companies also outside of the the beef industry that that will help us with that. Uh, you know, if we were just going off the money that the cows make, uh, no, we would not be able to do that by any means. And, you know, for, for cattle herds in Georgia, a 200 head operation is on the large end of things. You know, like the average cow herd in Georgia, I think is somewhere around 35 to 50 head. Somebody in that situation, you know, it, it's even harder for them to do it. But, mm. you know, we, luckily we have positioned ourselves financially to where we we feel like you know we don't know that we could do it with the whole calf crop and that's why we're we're doing half of it this year so we will have some some cash flow coming in this fall hopefully in the next 30 days that'll kind of help tide us over and will as we wrap up how has this pandemic changed the way you operate the way you all do business that you've been doing for decades now for generations well you know for generations and traditionally cattlemen like to see each other face to face and shake hands when they make a deal and have meetings on a regular basis to, to get new, you know, to stay as educated as we can on new processes and better ways to do things. And, you know, you look at the average age of farmer in Georgia and it's, you know, 57, 58, something like that, I think now. And a lot of those folks can handle technology, but a lot of them just don't want to. And when we've, through this pandemic when we've had to take all those in-person meetings and make them virtual meetings and and just essentially do away with a bunch of them because there was no way you could do them virtually Mm -hmm. it puts a it puts a strain on the sense of community and and you know networking that is a viable part of this industry i mean to be in this industry you've got to know people within your state on many different levels across the country uh if you're going to market cattle successfully. And so the biggest probably impact and change for us is just taking all those in-person meetings and putting them on zoom calls where you don't have good internet service to hear people and telephone calls where you can't 
look a man in the face and see, or a woman in the face and see what their emotion is when you're making a deal with them. And so it has definitely changed, you know, on a personal level, uh, it has changed mine and my wife's life. You know, we, we have to pay a lot more attention to where we go and who we're around. We still have to do, do our daily chores and business, but you know, it, it has definitely affected the, the amount of time we spend with friends or family or, getting to do off farm things to where, you know, farming's a hard living and it's a, it's an everyday business. And sometimes a person just needs to get away from it all to step outside of the box and, and be refreshed. And the opportunities to do that are kind of limited right now mm-hmm. with the current situation we're in. So, Have you had thoughts of how long do I want to do this or no matter what I'm in this, this is my, as you put it, this is in my blood. It's our family history yes ma'am i mean i'm i'm gonna do it as long as i possibly can uh you know it's a it's a cliche that you hear all the time farming is not a it's not just a job it's a lifestyle and really at the point that you you get to the point where you can operate and feel like you're making progress you've got so much invested and a lot of times you're got so much debt over your head that you can't just decide today well i'm just going to get out and it's going to be the last time i do this so it's on several different levels from a from a personal and moral level of wanting to do what's right and wanting to know that we're producing safe, that somebody, us, we try to, is producing safe food uh, for the world and our country and our state to eat. It's an honorable job to me. I intend to do it as long as the good Lord will let me. You know, there, there have been tough times in agriculture before. We've faced things we never thought we could overcome, and we have. Uh, we've had to change to do that but you know there's no thought in the back of my head well this will be the last year i'll i'll see a calf crop raised or i'll you know take product to market as a finished beef product you know that's that's not a thought right now that's a Mm. there's no other option but to keep going and so that's what we're going to do kind of kind of mentality i guess that's what a lot of people have had to do during this pandemic. Will Godowns, cattle farmer from Pike County, Georgia. Mr. Godowns, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Best of luck to you and the entire farming community. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. And as always, remember, eat more beef and buy it locally when you can. That helps the most. Buy locally. That's what we say. Thank you so much, Mr. Godowns. Keep us posted on how things are going, okay? Yes, ma'am. Y'all reach back about anytime you need to. All right. Take care now. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.
The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.